media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. You open your Bibles to Psalms, Psalm 52. It may be a a psalm that I I think that uh, most people would say uh, that they've probably never heard preached. Um, uh, You're going to hear a that preached this morning and uh, looking kind of in the context of uh, just the heaviness of this past week in the world that we live in. And um, in one way, we can't separate this week from uh, any other week. There's sadness all around us all the time. And, you know, one of the first prayers that I, I learned as a child is, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. By his hands we are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. And it, that, that simple childlike prayer started off with it's just the, those two phrases, God is great and God is good. As we get older, I wonder just out of just pragmatism, not out of theology, not out of anything but our own cynicism and our own human, humanity, and uh, that we begin to wonder, is God great? Is God good? And I know the theological answer to that, and I know that where most Christians would come with that, and yet just in life experiences, we live in a world that is so broken, and some weeks we observe that brokenness even more so than others. Do we really believe that God is not only great, but that he's truly good? You see, it's enough to make skeptics shout out that there must not be a God, or at least let's question his character or his goodness. Could a truly loving and merciful God allow such events happen in our lives? Would a truly powerful God not intervene and end things that are brutal and unthinkable in our lives? And I challenge you this morning to uh, that those questions just don't stop at the lips of skeptics, but very much can be entertained in the heart and the mind of a Christian. You say, well, Bobby, if we were a Christian, then, then we're not going to think those thoughts. Well, then I must not be Christian because this week I had to I had to struggle with that, guys. In my humanity, as a dad, as a grandparent, as a minister of the gospel, I looked at world events and I looked at different things. And, and guys, that's not just to isolate this week. We could go back and, and we could go through, through the last couple of years and there's just been blow after blow after blow after blow after blow of such atrocities. Such inhumane things that have happened in uh, in our culture that we would say, okay, God, um, are, you're great, and if you're great and you really truly are all these things and you're good, then why don't you intervene? In a re- recent national survey, it reaffirmed what I have heard over and over again. No matter what time period people have been asked this, uh, they were asked, "What are the first of uh, the top forty questions of life?" And this was done not just in churches. This wasn't to a um, you know, a Christian crowd and a secular crowd. It was to everybody. It was just kind of, a, it wasn't even done from Christian perspective. Just what are the top 40 questions of life? Number one, and it's been number one. Certainly my 38 years of ministry has been the number one question. Why does a good God allow evil? It's a really tough, tough question. Why is there suffering in the world? And people want to know how a good and gracious and kind and holy and loving God could exist when there's so much brokenness and evil around us. And 
And in one way, guys, please hear this. Please hear this. It's one of the most simple theological questions to answer. It's one of the most difficult human questions to answer. The theology behind it is pretty simple. We live in a broken world. We broke it. The complexity of that is, okay, God, at some point in time, are you going to intervene? And guys, he did. He clothed himself in flesh and he dwelt among us. And he hung on a cross for my sins so that the evil that I could both perpetrate and the evil that I deserved to come back on me, he, he gave answer to. See, somewhere along the way, people have gotten this crazy idea that if God is good, that somehow an evil world would not exist. That somehow that doesn't coexist. And the argument goes something like this. And, and even the early church fathers, uh, Augustine and all those people, they dealt with this. This isn't a current thing. This isn't because we have 24-hour news and now we're more aware. No, this has been asked throughout Christianity this question, this philosophical question, if God is really so good, then, then why does he allow suffering and evil to continue? And the argument kind of goes like this. If Christianity claims that God is holy and kind and loving and that he is all-powerful and the ruler of this universe, then this all-powerful God could wipe out evil. Do you, do you agree with that? And I agree with it, and the Bible would say conclusively that he could. I can do anything. But the tension point comes in that second. This totally good God would wipe out evil. And there's a logical part of that. There's a part of this that, that since, we, since we acquaint holiness and, and goodness with these things, that, okay, God, if you can, you, you should. Not just that you could, but that you would. And when we see evil, when we see all the heaviness of sin and we see the depravity of man, we wonder, okay, God, why don't you just stop that? And since we don't see a stop of evil, it has led people to conclude these things. Either, number one, God simply does not exist. He's a figment of our mind or imagination. That somehow it's a hope that's out there that we have and we've made up to somehow try to make it through this world. Or number two, that God exists, but he's not totally all-powerful. There are some things that he just can't fight against. Thus, he can't stop evil. Or they assume this third premise. God exists, but he's not totally good and perfect. He's not good. That would be the conclusion that many people draw. That's not the conclusion that I draw. And it's certainly not the biblical model that we have when we're told about this whole coexistence of a holy God who is good and loving and kind, but also we live in a very broken and evil world. So can we be honest this morning and admit that in some way that we've struggled with these questions? I don't think that it's a sin to struggle with hard questions, do you? I think God gave us a mind. It was a heart. And, and with this heart and this mind, we contemplate. And struggling with hard things is not sin. But in that struggle, we do need a foundation. We do need a direction. And the direction that I will be giving you today is that I would give you if you sat down in my office or if, if we got together and we were just having coffee together and, and you contemplated this question, my, my foundation is going to come back to what the Bible says. 
Because it is in the Bible that we get the truth about God, what he has said about himself. So that I don't do the error of coming up conclusions of who I think God is. I'm going to do that in my own fallenness, guys. And so I need the word of God to ever direct me and correct me when some, when I, you know, have my own thoughts about what God could do and what God should do. I believe that struggle can turn into sin when we try to answer these hard questions without a Bible or apart from the Holy Spirit. I believe that he's given us his word to ground us and he's given us the very spirit. He dwells within the believer to guide us in our thinking, even when it's really, really challenging the hard things. And with that in mind, let's open up and, and we see in this 52nd Psalm, uh, we see God addressing evil. In fact, uh, in your Bible, I think this would be probably in most translations. Do you see the little preface before verse 1? I mean, it's in verse 1. It's usually included there. But it's like the, in bold print, and it kind of gives us a description. This is very helpful in this psalm because there's some psalms that don't give us kind of a clue of what it was written in response to. And so we kind of come up with our own conclusions. Well, this must have been when David did this or when Moses did this or when this writer did that. It's kind of like in pop music. You know, there'll be a song that comes out and say, okay, what was the motivation behind that song? Who is she talking about? Is she talking about this guy? Or who is he writing about? An old girlfriend or whatever? And unless it's said, we don't know. Well, the Bible helps us out. So it's okay. This psalm is written in response to something that we can find in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. It says, To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doug... The uh, Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Okay, he said, okay, based on what happened there, this is a psalm in response to that. Where do we find that story, that event? 1 Samuel 21, 22. Let me give you a very Reader's Digest condensed version of what happened there. Uh, Doug was um, King Saul's chief herdsman. And he was present when David became a fugitive against King Saul, began to hide because he knew that his life was threatened. And so David is hungry. He's without food. He's on the run. And so he goes to the tabernacle. Or he goes to the, 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 the meeting place there where all the priests are. And he asks for food. And when he asks for food, he uh, is given some bread. And he's actually given Goliath's sword. Ahimelech uh, 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 gives him those things. And so this man, Doug's there, and, and Doug goes and he tells Saul this. And so, okay, I just want you to know, this is what happened. And this priest, this chief priest, this head priest, gave David, who's running for his life from you, and he aided and abetted him. Well, you can only imagine that King Solomon doesn't react very kindly to that. And Doug gets permission to go back and not only take Ahimelech's life, but 84 other priests, and then go into this little village called Nob and and kill all the women, the children, and the animals there. A great evil. How many of you have heard that story before? Yeah, a, a few have. It's really one of those that when we're reading the Bible, we're going, wow, this is like bigger than life. This is, wow. And yet it really happened. And so David is now writing this psalm in response to this. And with this evil done in mind by Doeg uh, to godly servants, 
we find this in verse 1. He's writing this kind of at first to Doeg and, and to men, women like him. He says, why do you boast of evil, almighty man? Now, he says almighty man because in, in Doeg's mind, he's mighty. He went out there and he killed all these priests and he killed all these others. And somewhere in his mind, his corrupt and fallen and very defiled mind, he's think he's doing something that shows his might. And so David writes in response, why do you boast of evil, almighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all day. And so even in verse 1, what we get is this tension. The evilness of man and this enduring goodness and holiness of God. Would you agree that here we are thousands of years later, and yet we still see that tension on an everyday basis? That there's still evil out there, and there's still unthinkable things that are done, by godless people and, and, and even by people that would call themselves godly. And so where's God in all this? In one way, he, he makes this tension point when he says the steadfast love of God endures all day. Now he begins to describe this doeg uh, character, okay, in verses 2 and 3. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. David makes no doubt that this evil person uh, and, and his characteristics, his foundation, and that he's warped and he's defiled in all of this. Now look what happens in verse 5. He begins to address what God is doing. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. You follow what's happening? Here's what you've done. Here's how evil you are. But God's going to get you. I mean, that was Bobby's paraphrase, okay? Either accept that or deny that from the Holy Spirit, okay? But, but this is basically what's going on. He said, you know, and, and sometimes, guys, is that the only thing that we can remedy in our mind of living in an evil world? That in the, that in the long run, God, God's going to work it out. And in the macro, that works. In the micro, when it's you, it's quite challenging. We can be quite theological when it's macro and it's that big. We talk about that a lot, about macro and micro, and how we, we're kind of good with truth and biblical truth when it's really, really big and just that kind of big frame. You start affecting my family and my wife or my children. And all of a sudden, I begin to struggle. Why? Because now my heart, my heart wants to kind of invade my head. And even things that I've conclusively said in my head to be right, now my heart is broken. My heart is troubled. And so now I have this tension between heart and head. David begins to address this. And in one part, that sounds okay. Okay, God's going to get you. That somehow this vengeance of the Lord one day to, to rectify and to, re, you know, to, to make everything right, uh, that's kind of a good answer in the, in the macro. The problem is that David says here that the God will judge, but here's the hard part. He doesn't say when. 
I think one of the hardest parts of living in an evil world is not that not believing that God will one day rectify things and and that there will be an accounting of things, but wanting that judgment now in a way that we desire. It's really hard for us to live out some of the New Testament truths. Because in the Old Testament, there was still kind of this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of thing. And so we're going, okay, God's letting us in a little bit. Okay, and I, well, come over here. Let me get your eye. You took a tooth. And let me. And so we kind of see this, maybe this participatory kind of like thing. Okay, God, you're going to involve me in some of this judgment. Or at least we would make that case for ourselves. And then we get to the New Testament and he says, hey, you got an enemy, pray for your enemy. Romans twelve nineteen. What's the first word? He's talking to Christians. He's writing this to the Romans, the Christian Romans. This isn't just to, to, to mankind. This is to believers, those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's actually found a lot of times in the Old Testament, several times in the New Testament. It's repeated five or six times, almost verbatim, in the in the Scripture. As far as vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And we like that part of it. And yet here we're instructed. I don't know about you, but in, in my Bible, over Romans 12, it says godly living, Christian living. <laughs> okay, this is what it involves? In a heart that now wants vengeance, uh, uh, somehow wants to see things made right in my lifetime. He says, don't avenge, but trust, leave it to God. Psalms 52, look at verse 6 and 7. Look what David says next. And it's important to know the root of the Hebrew word that's going to be used here in verse 6. If not, then we could really take this totally out of the the, the, um, format and the context that it was meant. Verse 6, the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Laugh at who? This person who's done so much evil. Here's the problem, guys. When we see that we're going to laugh at him, we would see that in some kind of a mockery, this mischievous, this uh, vindictive way. That's not the Hebrew word there. The Hebrew word is kind of complex, like the English word, and it says it's translated laugh at him, but this is a laughing in celebration of justice. It's a, a laughing also in the peace and the mercy, knowing that that's what we could suffer, but we're not having to suffer it. It's a very complex word there, but this is not a word of mockery that we're going to look at all those people as they begin to suffer hell and the punishment of all that they've done, and that Christians are sitting back laughing. That is not what this verse is saying. This word laugh, I wish it was translated a little bit different, but most translations put it there because that's what the Hebrew word said. But the context of that Hebrew word, the root of that, is not one of vindictiveness, but one that rejoices with justice. Now with that in mind, look at verse 7. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. What does he mean by that? Those who have not trusted in the provision of Christ, those who have not trusted in the provision of God, there will be a day where they will face what they've done. It doesn't matter how rich they were. It doesn't matter how accomplished they were on this life. There will be a day that they will stand before a holy God and face judgment. 
And David is writing this here in context of this evil man because that's fresh on his mind. He kills 85 priests and then goes wipes out an entire village, women and children and animals. David sees this, and so it's right there before him. And he says, there's going to be a day that you're going to pay for this. Why? Because you didn't trust in God, but you think yourself of this mighty man. You know, this is a, this laughter. It's a laughter of, of justice being done and a laughter of relief because in the same way that this man is getting something that is just to him, I believe that David is writing in reflection that that's what he deserves also. One of the worst mindsets I think that we can have as Christians is to look at the evil of the world and forget that we are evil by nature and that we're born into sin. And that except for God's choosing and calling us out of our sinfulness through Jesus Christ, that that is us. Well, Bobby, I would never go do this. I would never go do that. I would ne- Maybe you wouldn't, but that's where all of a sudden we begin to have a scale in our mind of what evil is. By biblical definition, evil is anything that's fallen short of the holiness and the goodness of God. Look at the last two verses, verses 8 and 9. He says, but I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. Now, why does he use green olive tree? Why didn't he say like a redwood? Why didn't he say this other? The green olive tree, this is a, a, an important part of Old Testament life or biblical life uh, in those days. And, and a living, they, they got a lot of different resources from olive tree. Olive trees are also known to last uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So there's this nature of a forever going on through generation after generation after generation. And he says, I'm like an olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Is he saying, okay, I'm special because I'm better than this guy who went out and killed 85 priests? No, he's saying, because I've put my faith and my trust in my God and who he is, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. He said, this is why I will live on. Verse 9, I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. David is not boasting this that he himself will prevail, but that he will prevail because of God's steadfast love. Folks, our hope is not that we are less evil than others. Our hope is that God sent a righteous and perfect one to stand in our place. David's not hoping that he's on the right side of this incident. And then he can point to somebody that clearly did tremendous evil. And and David can say, well, I, I didn't do that evil. Isn't that how my human mind works? Does your human mind work like that too? That when we see pervasive evil, any time and anywhere in the world, far away or close to home, that there is a part of our human nature and our human understanding that said, okay, God, I'm, I want you to get the evil people, but somehow I'm not evil because I would never do that or that or that. And yet theologically, guys, please, please understand. Please hear my heart on this. This could be so misunderstood. 
We were never innocent. We were born into sin. We needed Jesus Christ from the beginning, from our first breath. Well, Bobby, you just can't believe that that little baby, you know, you've got grandchildren. Surely you think that they're kind of, you know, they haven't perpetrated any crimes. They were born with the sin nature, guys. Go ask my two daughters and, 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 and son-in-laws, and they will tell you, wow, if we ever doubted depravity of man, we're convinced of it now. We have children. In a world filled with evil, please understand that your hope is not to be less evil than other people. Please don't buy into that very natural mindset. Your only hope is the one that never did evil at all. That God so loved you that he sent that one to you, his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look at the backstory, if you go back to 1 Samuel, that this psalm is based on, at least that's what we're instructed there in the beginning, that this was based off of that event when David goes into the house of God and he goes to Ahimelech and he says, I'm hungry, will you give me some food? Look at 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 2. And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with, in which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young man for such and such a place. And without knowing the whole backstory, do you see anything wrong with that? Has David been sent by the king? No, he's running from the king. What do we call that when it's not a truth? It's a lie. David lies in the house of God to the priest. I mean, a lie is a lie if you do it in your own home, if you do it back there. But somehow I know people go, oh, I would, you know, I might do this, but I would never do that at church. Doesn't really matter, but but I understand that. I understand that mindset. David lies. Why? Because he's hungry. And guess what? If you read on, they don't have bread. And so do you know what they do? They said the only bread that we have is the bread of presence, the holy bread, and we'll give you that. Yeah, well, that's not that big of a deal. No, it's a big deal, guys. You just kind of lied to the Holy Spirit in a way. I mean, this is a really big deal. Now, Bobby, why do you bring that out? Because in our mind, we are going to constantly battle, I'm okay because I did less evil. I would never do this unthinkable evil over here. Guys, this is how the human mind works. This is how human nature works. That somehow God's going to scale the matters of how evil something really was. He's already settled that. And we were born with this sin nature into sin and... and I had to deal with the evil since my first breath. Well, Bobby, have you ever robbed a bank? No. Have you ever killed a person? No. Have you cheated on your wife? No. And yet the word of God begins to clarify those things. 
Well, Bobby, when you look with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Well, God, don't do that. No, 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 no. No, the word of God exposes the heart, guys. Is it because I'm less evil that God has shown me favor? No. Because he called me by name and he says, Bobby, I will give you my son. Does this make sense, guys? Because one of the classic questions is, how can a good God allow suffering? And I don't know that we could ever fully wrap up and in these little human minds understand the bigness of that. But I did want you to, to think about this. He, where was God when all these bad things happened? He clothed himself in flesh and he dwelt among us. That's where he was. And either the biblical story is the right story or we have no hope, guys. Either we understand that we're just not a little less evil than anybody else. No, the only reason we're redeemed is because God sent his son. We place trust and faith in what God has done for us. That's what David is doing when he says, I'm like a green olive tree that will last forever and ever. But he doesn't say, because I'm just a good guy. No, he says, I will trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. We already sang it. He's our only hope. Bobby, are you sure that it's not just being less evil? Let me ask you just a philosophical question then. Okay, if we want to say that there's hope for less evil, I would never do something like this or that or whatever. Where do you draw that line? How much less evil do you have to be for God to say, ha, I'll take care of this? In one way, and please hear, I'm just asking in a philosophical way, when people say, well, I just got to allow suffering. Well, where if God does start to very much intervene every time that there's suffering, what consider, what is suffering? When there's going to be death involved, when, when there's a brutal attack, when it's a three-year-old child and some sexual abuser comes, those are horrific, and, and every part of my being wants God to intervene. Because do you, do you understand that when we begin to ask that question and don't trust the sovereignty of God, working in relationship to the free will of man, that we're in very dangerous territory of questioning his character at that point? Because how far back do we want to dial back that we want God to intervene. As I told somebody this morning, okay, we have a picnic planned tomorrow and it's supposed to rain, so God, will you please hold off the rain? I'm truly not trying to be silly and I'm certainly not trying to make a joke out of something so heavy as this. But guys, do you see where we would take that in our humanity? Do you see how that's just an unanswerable question? That we would draw a line and each one of us would draw that line a little bit differently. God has already drawn the line. He is holy and he is good. He is sovereign. He could. And for some reason, he does have an allowance right now to allow free will of man and evil to coexist with all of his holiness. But one day, this is what David points us to, one day, one day, everything will be rectified because all of a sudden people will become better. No, because Jesus Christ will be Lord. He is Lord. 
God has already made his answer, guys. We're not waiting for the final answer. We have the answer. His name is Christ. He's our only hope. Your hope is not to be less evil. Your hope is not to escape. I heard somebody this week, I just want to take my family and move to a cabin a thousand miles away. Man, do, do they have somebody like 500 miles away that I can move in right beside you? Every part of your being wants to do that to escape. And yet God has put us into this world. And we have to deal with the reality of this world. But let's deal with it in, in the reality of the truth of the Bible. And this is where it gets really messy. I mean, in some way here, here David lies to this priest. I mean, think about this. Just think through it and then we'll close. Think through this. He lies to the priest. Doeg hears that. He goes back and he says, okay, this priest gave him food. If he wouldn't have lied, would the priest have given him food? We don't know. But because David did lie, all of a sudden 85 priests are dead. A whole village of people, animals, children, everything are, are dead. I mean, in some way, is, is David kind of involved here? Is there something that you can say that he's just free from from any blame or guilt? I'm not trying to make an indictment on David. I'm just going, this is our, we're David. In the blood of Christ, we're David. Without the blood of Christ, we're Doeg. But Bobby, I would never, don't draw the line. Don't put your hope in being less evil. Put your hope in Jesus Christ and him alone. Where was God in all of this? He was clothing himself in flesh, dwelling among us, hanging on a cross, laying in a tomb for three days and rising in victory over sin, death, and the grave. God did not abandon you. He's come to you. He's our hope. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you this morning. Father, I pray that we have somehow handled your word directly and, 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 and Father, that we've preached it right. Father, I pray that you would forgive me if somehow I, I didn't understand or comprehend, if I've misapplied. Father, this is so, so hard. Because your truth of your word makes sense in my mind. And yet my heart screams. For for two weeks we have rejoiced with those that rejoiced. Through graduation. Through the celebration of new babies. Father, you've called us in this world to rejoice with those that are rejoicing, but also to weep with those that are weeping. And Father, we don't need an incident in, in Texas or we don't need a, a scandal in the SBC convention. Father, we, we don't need all those kind of things to remind us that our need is for you forever and ever and ever. Father, there is so much injustice in the world. So Father, give us hearts that truly do weep with those that are weeping. We love you and we thank you. And Father, we do place our hope as best as we can in the Christ and Him alone. A person, Father. Not just a principle. 
May he be so real to us this day, Father. As we pray all this in his blessed name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.